little bit of Python, episode 12, on the global interpreter lock and concurrency. I'm Andrew Cushling, located in Washington, D.C. I'm Michael Ford, located in Northampton in the U.K. And I'm Jesse Noller, located somewhere outside of Boston. Our large discussion in this episode is going to be about Python's global interpreter lock, what it is, and some recent code changes that have been aiming at making it function better. So to start off, I should explain what what the global interpreter lock, or GIL, is. Python is implemented... Uh, sorry, I should clarify and say CPython is implemented with one big lock. And the goal of this lock is to ensure that Python objects are only modified or accessed from one single thread at a time. At its heart, Python has a small virtual machine that is busy spinning through a loop implementing bits of bytecode. And the effect of the global interpreter lock is that there's only one thread of control actually running this Python bytecode at any one time. For a long time, the way this was implemented was by counting opcodes executed by the virtual machine. A thread would run a few thousand or a few hundred opcodes and then stop and yield the CPU, letting some other thread have a chance to run. People noticed that this was, was causing problems for certain applications. In particular, if you have several threads that are all doing fairly CPU-heavy things in pure Python code, you don't actually use your CPU very efficiently, or you don't use multiple CPUs, because you're constrained to have only one thread running in Python code at a certain time. And in fact, David Beasley did some um, some work recently, and, and what he discovered was kind of c- counterintuitively. If you suppose you have two two threads running, and they're both doing some very CPU intensive work, um, if you run them on a, a system with one processor, then Python does what you'd expect it to do. The global interpreter lock means that only one thread is active at a time, so you get your threads switching between each other. But then if you uh, switch and run the same code on a system with more than one processor, and you can simulate that if you've got a machine with um, multi-core processors, you can simulate this by by turning your uh, individual cores on and off, that suddenly the, the code takes dramatically longer to run when you have more than one processor active than it did if you just had one processor. Now, fair enough, Python isn't using more than one processor, because it's not allowing more than one thread to run at the same time, but you really wouldn't have expected uh, a side effect of having more processors available is that your threaded code takes a lot longer to run. Uh, and he looked into this and he found out that, that because the operating system is saying, hey, well, I've got, the, I've got more than one system thread, I've got more than one processor available, so let me, let me try allocating each of these threads to different cores. So it tries to wake up the, the thread that doesn't have the global interpreter lock. This thread then says, oh, can I have the global interpreter lock? And the answer is no, something else has got it. So it goes back to sleep. 
So the operating system tries to wake it up again, and you end up with what he called radical thrashing, where um, the operating system is trying to wake up these threads, but because of the global interpreter lot, they can't actually do anything. So one of the, the core Python developers, uh, a French chap called Antoine Petru, implemented a, a, an alternative system. So this effectively was a new gill, and you might, if you read any of the discussion around the Python uh, global interpreter lock, you might hear it referred to as the new gill. And it was the first time the gill code in the core of Python had been touched for like 10 years or something, that used an alternative um, system for deciding when to, to, to um, wake up the, 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 or when to hand over, hand the lock over to the threads that didn't have this particular problem. But it turns out that there's a, another corner case, another particular situation where the new gill also has problems. And, um, and so they're, they're, currently there's a big discussion and, and there's some, some um, debate around how this problem can, can be solved and what might be done about it. And I think Jesse's going to talk to us about that. Yeah, so basically what it is, is Antoine went and implemented what everyone's been calling the new gill. And so the new gill showed, you know, radical improvement, and everyone thought everything was happy and hunky-dory. Well, then David Beasley turned around and actually tested some stuff, and one of the things he found is that, you know, IO-bound threads were actually getting harmed um, by the new gill when mixed with CPU threads. Basically what would happen is... If you've got a CPU-bound thread, it will chug away, chug away, chug away. And then the new gill, which was a timer-based gill, basically, you must release the gill within this time frame. And what he found was IO-bound threads would get starved because what would happen is the second you enter C code, the gill would be released. And then all of a sudden that thread, the thread running the... IO bound code would immediately release the gill because it's IO bound co it's IO code and then it will it, it would immediately want to return or do something else and what happened is the second it actually released the gill some other CPU bound thread which is you know n n greedy by definition uh, would actually acquire the gill and have a hold of it so that IO bound thread would actually have to sit there and wait for the timeout period to actually expire. So basically you'd have that convoy effect of, you know, all of your IO bound threads actually having worse performance in the new gill than in the old gill case. You know, there's a bug report. It's actually if you go to uh, bugs.python.org forward slash issue seven nine four six, you can actually see David's original bug report in the full discussion about all of the changes, the possible things that could um, fix it, etc. But so this was actually pretty heavily discussed at PyCon this year, and David Beasley did a fantastic, fantastic talk. And, and that's the, up on the the PyCon videos. So if you get the opportunity, go and and watch the video of that presentation because it's it's um, it's a it's a, a fantastically put together presentation. Very easy to understand, even if you're not sort of au fait with all the details of, of, of the gill. Yeah, so David Beasley did this amazing talk at PyCon, and um, that spawned an open space session and a lot of uh, a lot of people who are much smarter than I am um, discussing possible fixes to the gill, especially the new gill. And the general consensus that came out of that room, as far as I can remember, and somebody else will probably send me an email and correct me, um, is that the interpreter needs to actually grow a real scheduler, not just 
you know, an, an actual intelligent, relatively fair scheduler so that we don't just beat CPU-bound threads into the ground or we don't just beat I.O.-bound threads into the ground. We needed something that would be sane, rational, and there's obviously a ton of work. You know, Linux kernel, uh, they've got the completely fair scheduler and all these other schedulers for um, de deciding how threads are uh, put to sleep or woken up, you know, how the workloads are handled. And so that was the common consensus coming out of PyCon is we need, you know, a more mature, uh, more robust scheduling system. Well, Spe speaking of being mature, it's a shame that Brett isn't here because he's he's wanted to, to swear on this podcast for quite a while. And <laughs> now we have a legitimate reason for it. Yes. So now enter somebody named uh, Nir Ides. I think I pronounced that name right earlier this week. Uh, actually posted a patch to that bug report I cited earlier, and he ported the BrainFuck scheduler, which is not tied to BrainFuck the language, but actually tied to the guy who actually implemented it. What did you say, Michael? How was he quoted as to... Uh, the he, he called it the BrainFuck scheduler because he said that... He must have. He must be fucked in the brain to work on on this particular problem because it's very mind bending. Well, yes, and actually, if you read the patch, you'll understand why. So Nier actually uploaded a patch that ported the scheduler over, and actually, his initial benchmark showed you know some improvement, and it's 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 a much more robust scheduler than what we have currently. Um, now, not this does not get rid of the gill. And so there's been some, and Mike's been involved in some conversations about this. What this does is it basically renames the gill and changes it to, you know, a big mutex that everyone has to acquire. <coughs> a gill. It changes a lot of the names of the internals and it changes how things are scheduled. But the fact of the matter is you can still only have one thread within C eval, which is basically the core evaluation loop for Python at any one given time. So it doesn't get rid of the gill. It just makes it a lot more well-behaved. And so that's actually that patch that Nears put in is actually still being discussed between him and Antoine as to, you know, whether or not this is the right way to go about it, etc. So if you're feeling squirrely, I would d try downloading the patch. It's for Pi 3K only. And I would say download the patches in, in that bug, which is, again, it's issue 7946 on bugs.python.org. And... um download it and give it a try and definitely give the feedback to Antoine and Nier as to, you know, whether or not it works better, worse, or the same for you. This whole area of scheduling algorithms seems to be something that requires a lot of tuning and tweaking. Certainly for Linux, they've had long discussions of how do we make a scheduler that works for interactive apps running on someone's desktop where you click in a window and you want it to respond. And does that schedule actually work well for a server app where maybe you don't care so much about the latency, but you care about throughput? Oh, definitely. Andrew's definitely right. So one of the things that happened at uh, PyCon when everyone was talking about growing a scheduler, um, you know, for every person who'd say, well, why don't we schedule things this way? There'd be another person that says, well, that would harm this workload. One of the things with dealing with schedulers and deciding what threads run when is that there's no one true way of doing it, right? You will always harm someone else with the decisions that you make. So all we can really hope is to put in something that's good for the most common case, e.g. single-threaded 
operations, uh, which most most Python applications are single threaded. We can put something in that does relatively well across fairly diverse spectrum of things, and then export tunables, you know, little switches and knobs and flobnosticators that would allow you to basically tune the gills release and acquire cycle to your workload. One well, one of the interesting things about the the new gill is that it does change some of those APIs. And for example, I think at the moment the sys module has this check interval. API, which lets you set how many opcodes it go in between checks to, to see whether there's another thread that, that wants the gill. If you remember Andrew was talking about it earlier, that, that's how the, the original gill was implemented. And of course, with the new gill or whatever we finally end up with, um, and that'll be in Python 3.2, by the way, and, and not in Python 2.7, which is just um, about to hit beta this sys check interval API is going to have to change because it's just not going to be relevant. So, yeah, uh, as um, Jesse says, some, some of the, the knobs that you can twiddle to tune performance are, are going to change. I think we should make it clear that one of the changes of Antoine's new gill is that it switches from switching every N opcodes to a time-based switch where it switches every N milliseconds or whatever oh yeah i thought i mentioned that yeah i mean it's the gill the gill uh the python 2 gill is basically every 500 bytecode instructions switch and antoine switched that to a time-based one which actually introduced the convoy effect i mentioned earlier um which basically for which actually penalizes anything that uses a c extension which includes numpy uh io operations etc Basically, if you enter C code, most C most C extensions immediately release the gill, and the problem is, is that if they immediately release the gill, some other greedy thread will grab that gill and hold on to it for that full time period. Which but, but whilst that actually, it, has, it has this kind of um, whilst it does have that the the potential for the convoy effect you mentioned, there are lots of situations for which time based is much fairer, and part of the reason for that is because. Python opcodes are not a very good way of measuring how much time has progressed because they effectively take an arbitrary and potentially completely different amount of time to execute. I mean, if you're in a very fast loop, um, then opcodes can take the order of microseconds to execute. Whereas if you um, call into a regular expression, you know, I mean, a single opcode could potentially take a second. Um, obviously, that's... Um, another corner case but but time based is generally much fairer than than an opcode switch yes however in python things aren't always what they seem to be <laughs> so uh yeah basically the time based one actually penalizes anything that uses a c extension that quickly releases the gill which is ironically c extensions that quickly release the gill is the only reason why the python 2 implementation of the gill actually didn't bother most people because it didn't harm them the guild didn't actually penalize well, um, IO-bound applications as badly as CPU-bound applications. Sure, but uh, for example, in the case of something like NumPy, that probably releases the guild because even after releasing the guild, it can still do its processing in its thread uh, um, whilst letting another Python, because it doesn't need to go back into the, the eval uh, that core, it can carry on spinning away inside NumPy without needing the global interpreter lock. Oh, so yeah, I, 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 mean, don't, I, don't think, I don't think for NumPy that would be a problem. But for IO-bound stuff, where you need um, 
you need when a new packet comes in, you want to be able to respond to it very quickly and don't want to have to wait for a car night. Well, I and mean, yeah. the, the basic point is is that basically for a C extension or I.O. bound extension, they get penalized if they're called and they quickly release the gill and then they need it back to basically say, you know, I either have information or I don't have information. Basically, if if they return very, 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 very quickly, they're going to get penalized by the scheduler, right? And so this, I mean, this probably won't bother NumPy applications as much as it would IO-bound applications. But basically, if you make a NumPy call that could return in, you know, a nanosecond, then you'll you're going to get penalized for the full time uh, timer of the uh, time-based gill. So, I mean, it's obviously an edge case for things like NumPy workloads, but for IO-bound workloads, that is actually fairly common. So the good news is that there are lots of very clever people who are looking at this, and, and hopefully with the with this shed, scheduler, and this, this scheduler patch really is the first time that um, we've looked at getting a real scheduler rather than um, the standard sort of... Um, mutex operations that we've had up until now obviously as jesse has said there's still going to be some corner cases perhaps having a way of tuning the tuning the um the way this behaves is going to be essential but the, in the general case and, and for the common cases it's going to behave a lot better and in particular compared to the old gill where running any multi-threaded code on a on a multi-core system would really impact the performance of your python code it's going to be um, a great improvement, but you're going to have to switch to Python three to see that improvement. Yeah, I, I just so one thing that's always kind of bothered me about everything that's been be being discussed is yes, if you are running I/O bound threads on a multi-core machine, there is a penalty, right? It doesn't go as fast as you. Do you mean a C Do you mean a CPU bound threads? No, 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 no. So CPU bound threads on a multi-core machine, you see no benefit of running in multiple threads. Right, it actually right. runs. It, it it's slow. It's slower. <laughs> However, and you should and you should be using pro, uh, processes if you can. Yes, um, but let me point out that for I/O bound applications using threads on multi-core machines, and this is the one thing that I think people forget time and time again in this entire discussion is, yes, if you have I/O bound threads on a multi-core machine and you run them in Python, they do not run as quickly as you think they should. However, you will still see a speed up. They they don't run efficiently, and there are problems. And David has you know done an amazing amount of work pointing out these problems. But one of the things that I heard people walking away from the talk at PyCon, they were walking away saying basically, there's no reason to use I/O bound threads in Python. Right? They'll never work right. They'll never get a speed gain. No, benchmark your application. Right? Sit there and spin up. You know. 20 or 30, you know, IO bound threads and compare that to the single threaded version of IO bound threads and you'll actually see it. You'll actually see a performance improvement in Python 2. Threads aren't completely useless. They don't work as well as they need to um, or they should in most of our minds, but they're not completely useless and threads are useful for a lot of things. So we can't just say go off and use processes exclusively. Um, yeah. And, and, and if I can just add that, the, there's um, there's a very simple way around the problem of the global interpreter locket in Python. If you want to use 
threading and um, and you want to use threading for, for CPU bound operations or for IO bound operations or for whatever and you want to do that without the, the problems of the global interpreter lock uh, the easiest way around that is to switch to using Jython or Ion Python both of which have true free threaded concurrency without a global interpreter lock uh, and both are complete implementations of Python and available now I think one of the Python developer group's fears about introducing a thread scheduler was that it would be really complicated code and it would be something that you can tweak endlessly without ever having a clear idea of whether you're improving things for actual sure, users sure. or not. We'd end up re-implementing the, 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 the operating system scheduler. One nice thing about Nier's proposed BFS scheduler is... I think it's conceptually very simple, at least from scanning through the patch. There's it's about 150 lines of code, is that right? I could not tell you. That's sort of order of magnitude, anyway. About right, yes. And unfortunately, the bug doesn't have a detailed explanation of the logic underlying it. But I think the way it works is that it's keeping track of a deadline time for each thread. It tries to... to run each thread so that it executes before it hits its deadline. If a thread misses its deadline, or, or if a set of threads misses their deadlines, those threads are run in, in FIFO order. So they're basically just sorted by deadline order. And the deadline is then updated in different ways, depending on whether it's a CPU-bound thread and it exhausted its slice of time, or if it exited its slice of time early. It would be very nice if someone were to write up an actual detailed explanation of how this patch schedules. But I think that's how it works from a rough scan. Yeah, a simplified version. Um, actually, if you search for uh, B, as in baby, FS scheduler, and you do a quick Google search, the uh, the first hit is actually says BFS patch, and it actually links to the BFS fact, which is actually a pretty good read. Basically, the why, the wherefore, who wrote it, how the scheduling works. Um, it's a short read, but it's probably dense. Um, if this patch actually goes in, I think that you know having a little chunk of text on docs.python.org is going to be critical, just so that people understand what it is and how it works. I actually didn't find the BFS FAQ really explained how it works. It, it talks about tuning parameters, and it talks about his patch plans and, and certain scheduler classes it supports, but I didn't figure it out from that fact. Yeah, like I, sa like I said, we're going, we're going to need, uh, up on docs.python.org, we're going to definitely need a, uh, we're going to need something with diagrams. Just to kind of explain it. Um, I, I had to do some coding that really needed diagrams this week. Um, and um, my lack of ability to draw, uh, and especially when you're working remotely, um, that became a real problem. Oh, here we go. I've actually got the document that explains the uh, scheduling. If you're interested in finding out exactly how the BFS scheduler works, you know, kind of the internals of it, do a Google search for sched which is S-C-H-E-D dash capital B, capital F, capital S dot T-X-T. So that's sked dash BFS dot text. The first hit on Google 
is the white the text document that um, actually describes how the scheduler works and some of the tunables, etc. And we should note this describes the Linux BFS scheduler, which is yes. much more complicated than the the Python one, which is taking inspiration from the Linux BFS. Yes, it's a, it's a rough port, but if you're interested in like the history of the BFS and where BFS came from, go take a look at this. This doesn't, like Andrew said, this doesn't exactly explain how the Python implementation works. Uh, that's going to require a little document up on docs.python.org, but it, it'll get you part of the way there. Looks promising, and but I'm certain it will require further work and experimentation. And uh, Python 3.2 itself is, is looking to, to be uh, going to beta towards the end of the year, so there's plenty of time to work this out. Unfortunately, Python, the job is easier for Python 3 than it is for Python 2. Python 2 still supports the threading models of some quite now quite old and obscure platforms, which means that it's very unlikely that this scheduler is going to be backported by the core developers to run on Python 2, because um, not the... The, the platforms that Python 2 supports um, don't all have the, the threading primitives that are needed. There's this new PEP. Uh, it's targeted at Py3, uh, Py3K. It's uh, PEP3148. And it's just called Futures. Execute computations asynchronously. Um, this is put together by Brian Quinlan, and what it is is a little small amount of syntactic sugar around building thread pools or process pools and then executing functions and other bits of code within it uh, concurrently or asynchronously. If you take a look at the PEP, there's you know not a whole lot of bulk to it because it's not, it's not big, right? The actual implementation uh, of the code is actually pretty small. And what it does is it gives you a little thing called an executor that uh, allows you to say, so with futures.threadpool executor, max workers is equal to five. As executor, you now have a handle to that, that process of that thread pool. And you can then pass things into that thread pool that will return you a future. And that future contains, that future result basically says, is it done? What's the result? Um, what's its state? And you can call methods like cancel on that, etc. Um, fundamentally, this isn't, you know, groundbreaking, uh, groundbreaking computer science. Um, it's just a little bit of syntactic sugar for when you want to execute blocks of code um, asynchronously, right? You don't care about the result, having the result now. You just want to have the result sometime in the future, e.g. futures. Um, it was actually modeled after the Java util uh, concurrent uh, futures package, which is actually pretty popular in, in, and in widespread use. So what's the state of this, Pep, Jesse? Has this been accepted? Is it likely to, to go, into, go in and will it be Python 3.2 or 3.3? Um, so that's kind of up in the air. Brian's actually been on vacation. Uh, it was proposed to Python dev and there was a lot of back and forth about, you know, should it be called, most of the arguing was actually about the name. Uh, people argued, you know, it shouldn't be called futures. Other people said, like myself said, listen, other languages already call this thing, this concept of 
things to be returned in the future futures let's just leave the name alone um so once brian's back from being on vacation and we iron out uh one or two windows isms uh or window problem or windows problems with it i actually think it could probably hit the next version of python 3 which is 312 i think Three, three, 3.2. Yeah, 3.2. Yes, sorry. So, yeah, so 3.2. One thing to note, though, um, I believe it's going to actually go into a namespace which I've proposed, which is concurrent. So, basically, you'd be able to say from concurrent import futures. My, uh, my little personal goal with this is I'd like to see Python grow a concurrent package. Um, you could say from concurrent import pool or from concurrent import futures, or from concurrent, you know, import X, where X is basically syntactic sugar over common patterns and operations when dealing with concurrent uh, concurrent code. So there might be a thread pool in there. Um, there might be, there would be futures. There might be some things for multiprocessing, like the map and apply async and other things pushed into this concurrent package and removed from the multiprocessing module. Um, I think this is this would provide a nice foundation moving forward for people trying to get started with concurrency and parallel constructs within Python. When you say it was inspired by Java Util Concurrent, are the actual class and method names inspired by Java or just sort of the the concept and general organization of the package? Well, quoting directly from the PEP, um, it was heavily influenced by Java's uh, Java Util concurrent package. Um, the conceptual basis of the module, as in Java, is the future class, which represents the progress and result of an asynchronous computation. Right? So basically what that says is Java has this concept of a future, which, is, which has also been called something called a promise which is a result, is a thing which has not occurred, but you are promised to have a result for in the future. Um, so that's basically where the inspiration has. And Java actually has something called Java Util Concurrent Future. So if anyone, if any, if anyone feels very strongly about futures and, you know, they hate the implementation, once again, it's PEP3148. I would recommend you get involved on Python Dev. There's a discussion that's been going on for a little while. I encourage people to download the reference implementation, which is actually pretty complete. Give it a try. Basically, what Brian has done is he hasn't made it so that you can just ignore the difference between threads and processes. He's just given it syntactic sugar so you don't have to think about actually implementing the pools and the futures and kind of managing startup and shutdown yourself. Um, and, and needing a pool of, of threads or a pool of processes is a very common pattern. Oh, it's it's concurrent it's, programming. It's ridiculously common. Ridiculously common. I mean, I, I think the big takeaway here is that concurrent pro programming and how you handle um, computationally expensive things on on multi-core processes is is, um, is just becoming ever more and more important. And Python isn't ignoring this problem. It, it's trying to adapt and grow new APIs and new solutions to these difficult problems. Oh, and, de and, and one of the things that I've been kind of saying, and I said, I said quite a bit at PyCon this year, which is in, in, the, in the land of concurrency and parallel computing, if Python has an original thought, we're doing it wrong. 
and really it's there's a lot of languages there's a lot of comp, uh, computer science out there there's a lot of constructs that come from other languages that python should adopt over time and you know do it pythonically for some measurement of pythonically but do it pythonically and pull it into the language so i don't want to see us you know going off and blazing new trails and making up new stuff i want us to see you know time time tested and proven constructs inside of the language news from the the um the world of alternative implementations and uh, i i follow the iron python world quite closely i was doing full-time development with iron python for a few years and uh, I, i've been working in unit test recently and one of the things i've just added is support for better handling of control c so you can break out of your test suites but it'll handle that elegantly and wait for the current test to end and and then report all of the tests that have run so far uh, switched on with the command line option and that uses the signal module and also the weak reference um, module which for the first time i'd used that um, in python which i found very interesting but which is utterly irrelevant to what i'm talking about um, but trying it on Iron Python didn't work because they don't have the signal module. So I emailed the Iron Python list and said, well, can we have the, the signal module, please? And they said, oh, we, we've just done that. It'll be um, coming out soon. And the very next commit was the, the Iron Python signal module. So it looks like that, that'll actually go into Iron Python 2.7, which isn't going to be the, the next release is going to be Iron Python 2.6.1, which despite being a minor point release, has some really interesting stuff, particularly performance improvements around startup time and import time improvements, which is great because IronPython is, is quite a bit slower at importing stuff than, C, than CPython. But they've also found a new way of getting a lot better compatibility with the Python Unicode um, support. Now, IronPython, like Python 3, has all Unicode strings, which, which makes string handling much nicer, but it does lead to compatibility problems where you're running Python frameworks or applications like Django, and they found a much better way of supporting Unicode in Iron Python, and that's going to be in Iron Python 2.6.1, which is coming out shortly. So some other news in the Python world. Uh, obviously, we're not the only Python podcast there is out there. A, a podcast that's been going for a long time, and uh, I'm sure most of you have heard of, because it's, uh, it's a very good podcast, is the, the Python 411 podcast series, and that's uh, a gentleman called Ron Stevens. But we've also just uh, had news of a new podcast starting up, so we've got some um, competition. And this is From Python Import Podcast, and their URL is fromPythonImportPodcast.com. They've actually recorded their first episode now, but it, 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 at the time of us recording this session... It's not available to listen to. They, they say it will be released on the, the 1st of April, although they promise it's not on April's Fool's Joke. So I encourage you all to, to go and listen to it, give them feedback, tell them how good it is, but that they're not as good as us. <laughs> Although this is not a competition. <laughs> and the folk who are involved in that are David Starnick, Mike Crute, and somebody else, Chris Miller. They're the, the three folk collaborating in From Python Import Podcast, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. This has been a little bit of Python episode 12 on the Global Interpreter Lock and Concurrency. Please send your comments and suggestions to the email address all at bitofpython.com. 
Our theme is track 11 from the Headroom Project's album Haifa, available on the Magnatune label. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.